are in Proverbs chapter 8. Chapter 8 is mostly introductory information. In fact, it sort of reads like a separate introduction to the book. In other words, you've got the first seven chapters, which are the first seven chapters of the book, and then you've got chapter 8, which feels like an introduction all over again. I'm going to blow through most of it. Toward the end, I want to slow down. Most of the stuff we'll be doing is in chapter 9 tonight. So, chapter 8. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand, beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. So, obviously the idea here is that wisdom can be found everywhere. The simple and the fool, someone who is simple is simply young, teenager, young man. And young men are notoriously stupid. In the Bible, they're called simple because assuming that they get good discipline, good training, they will grow out of it and become mature men and so forth. One that doesn't grow out of it, however, is a fool. So you're talking really two classes of people here. One is young and naive. The other one is someone who is actually foolish and should know better. Verse 6. Here, for I will speak of noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all you may desire cannot compare with her. This is instruction to the young. And of course, when you're young, the flash and dash of the world seems really attractive. And what wisdom here personified as a woman says is that the flash and dash that you are attracted to as a young man are really nothing compared to the pursuit of wisdom. So instead of devoting yourself to the pursuit of goods, devote yourself instead to the pursuit of wisdom, and the gain that you get will eventually be greater. Verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find knowledge and discretion. And we've talked about that in the past. Uh, wisdom, prudence, knowledge, and discretion are all different terms. So wisdom is knowing what to do. Prudence is being cautious, not being reckless. Not cautious in a fearful way, but just not being reckless. Knowledge, of course, is facts, and then discretion is knowing when to keep your mouth shut. Verse 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. One of the things that we'll see in Proverbs, and we've already seen, is the fear of the Lord is used as an introduction to lots of things. So later on it'll be the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, for example. So the idea that wisdom is something that is different than the fear of the Lord, what she's saying is that the grounding of fear of the Lord starts you on the way to becoming wise. If you become wise without the fear of the Lord, you become then somebody like a Balaam, who is very wise and very smart and all that kind of stuff, but didn't have the proper fear of the Lord and so got himself into trouble. Verse 14. 
I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. One of the things that I said, this idea that wisdom is the province of rulers, I talked about a concept that I got from Jonathan Sachs. What he said was that in the Bible there's three voices. There's the voice of the prophet, there's the voice of the king, and there's the voice of the priest. And each one of them has a different charge from God. So the priest handles day-to-day teaching about the Torah, differentiating between clean and unclean, differentiating between holy and common. That's the priest's job, and caring for the temple of the tabernacle and so forth. The prophet is a voice from God for a time and a place and a situation. So when God needs something corrected in Israel, he sends a prophet. And the words of the prophet are spoken into a specific situation. They are not necessarily general. My favorite example, which I use over and over again, is on Isaiah. It talks about all your righteousness being as filthy rags. That is for a time and a place. Israel was performing the trappings of righteousness. They were doing all the stuff that the temple demanded and so forth but the society itself had become corrupt and murderous. And so what God is saying to Israel is, all of this pious stuff that you're doing smells to me like dirty diapers. It does not say in general forever, always, that human righteousness smells to God like dirty diapers. It's a word into a situation. Now, if the situation comes up again, then that word is again applicable. God wrote it down for our knowledge and so forth. So if we get to the point where we have the form of religion but the society underneath becomes corrupt, then all your righteousness is like dirty diapers becomes operative again. But it's not a general principle. And then the third voice is the voice of the king. And that's what we've got here. And wisdom says, by me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rules and nobles, all who govern justly. So what it's saying there is that the voice of the king is the voice of wisdom. And it is the voice of experience, the voice of wise, godly men who conduct their affairs righteously. It is not scripture in the sense, thus saith the Lord. It's not that kind of a scripture. What it is is simply, this is wisdom And if you follow this, in addition to having the fear of the Lord, then you will have a good society. And and in a sense, Yeshua came with two voices. He has the voice of the prophet. So during the time he was walking on the earth, he was walking in an Israel whose society had become fractious and corrupt. They couldn't get along. They were splintering into sects, and each of the sects hated each other. So he walks into that situation, and he speaks with the voice of a prophet. He is speaking specifically to a situation at a time, and he's giving God's word into that situation, which is, you guys aren't doing well. And you remember in John chapter 8, when he dukes it out with the Pharisees, finally looks at him and says, you are of your father, the devil. So that's the voice of a prophet. 
he also is, of course, the king. And in some cases, he speaks with the voice of the king, which is wisdom. And how do you get along? And how do you how do you interact with each other so as to have a good society? Verse 17, maybe. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. And this goes back to what I said earlier. The natural inclination of a young person is to fall in love with flash. I want the fancy car. I want the good clothes. I want all of this stuff because that's the first thing he sees. And what wisdom is saying is pursuit of me will eventually get you those things and will get you far more because you won't wind up in jail or dead or something else in their pursuit. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. So the idea that wisdom will eventually get you wealth, and one of the things that I find interesting is this idea of an inheritance, because in other parts of the scripture, inheritance speaks of the world to come. And I quite frankly don't know if that's what's meant here, but the idea of living wisely and prudently on the earth in the fear of God, getting you an inheritance certainly is consistent with everything in the New Testament. Okay, we're going to change focus here now. What we're going to do is go back to the creation. And what we're going to do is put wisdom in context with the rest of Scripture. So verse 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. And some of your translations may be at the beginning of his way. So the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. So the idea here, and it says it other places, is wisdom is one of the tools that God used to create the world. Earlier on in Proverbs, it says, by wisdom, God created the world. The idea of wisdom, of course, is knowing how to apply knowledge in a way that will bring forth something good. So the idea that God used wisdom as the tool for bringing this forth, and he says so at the end of Genesis 1, and he saw it was very good, certainly consistent. Verse 27, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. I think that's just some of the best poetry in the Bible. I really enjoy that. And I don't really have anything to say beyond that. It's just really beautiful. So 32. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, 
waiting beside my doors. Now, we started off with wisdom going abroad and standing in the streets and all that kind of stuff. So wisdom is out there everywhere and looking for people. And now what it's done is reversed and said, blessed are you who now stand at my door and wait on me. Verse 35. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Now I want to camp out there for just a minute. Obviously it's a mashal. Um, So whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. So life and favor for the Lord are the first phrase, if you will. And then he who fails to find me injures himself. And all who hate me love death. Now, again, there's two concepts there. There's the one who doesn't find wisdom. And then there's the one who hates wisdom. Wisdom says, if you look for me, you'll find me. Hence, if they don't find her, then they didn't look. I am not quite that harsh. There are lots of people who sort of like looking for love in all the wrong places. They're looking for it, and they're not very skillful at it, and they don't get good instruction, and they don't get good guidance, and so they don't, in fact, find her. But that's very different from those who hate wisdom. The first one is somebody who's gone astray, been led astray, and because of that is injured. The lack of wisdom causes him injury, either personal or financial or physical or whatever. That's as opposed to somebody who hates wisdom, and what it says here is the one who hates wisdom loves death. And again, that isn't at all far-fetched. I don't know much about psychology, but one of the things that they said which is probably true, is the two strongest drives in humanity are the drive for sex and the drive for death. We have a society right now that has got a death wish. And they are driving as hard as they can toward death. And some of these are intelligent people, intelligent in the worldly psychological sense. You know, they're, they're successful and they're clever and they're charming and all that kind of stuff. But They hate wisdom, and they, in fact, are in love with death. Chapter 9 now. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. And I don't know what the seven pillars of wisdom are. It just sort of shows up here. I have a note, and this is just a translator's cross-reference, where he refers to the seven churches in Revelation. Could be. And, of course, you know, you have the pillars of the tabernacle. and So pillars get used a lot in Scripture, and seven gets used in a lot in Scripture. But I don't know what the seven pillars of the house of wisdom are, right offhand. Could be our friend the menorah. Because remember, we went through uh, the menorah where we had the seven spirits of God laid out on the seven branches of the menorah. Could be the seven feasts. Lots of things it could be. I just don't know. Chapter 9 again. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beast. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. 
So this very much echoes the beginning of chapter 8, where wisdom goes abroad seeking the simple. And here she's prepared a feast, and she sent out her young women to call the simple. And the simple are young men. They just don't have any experience. And so the idea then that she wants them to come and eat and drink at her table and then leave your simple ways and live. In other words, if you continue to be simple beyond your mid-20s, you got a real problem. Verse 7, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. This is a theme that will show up over and over again. The idea that there are some people who really, really like being where they are in life. And if you don't believe that, just look at the news. We've got students, and I would use that in quotes, who are harassing and terrorizing university professors and administrators. They will not accept correction or rebuke from even those who are supposed to correct and rebuke them, which is to say they're professors and administrators. So if you try and correct one of those, what you will do is you will get yourself abuse. And it will say later on in Scripture that really the only way to correct such a one is with a beating. Talking to him doesn't work. We had an old saying in the Army, dealing with a mule, what you had to do is you hit him with a two-by-four, and then you got his attention, and then you can start talking to him. But until you got his attention, you can't talk to him. And again, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abused, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Notice that you have two kinds of people. You have scoffers and you have the wicked. And although they are certainly related, they are not the same. A scoffer will simply abuse you, one assumes verbally, whereas the wicked will actually do you injury. Verse 8, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. As I said at the beginning of this, if you were all 13, 14, 15, I would spend a lot more time on this than I am now. You are all more mature people, and so I'm sort of clipping through that because most of this is obvious once you do have some wisdom. Verse 9, give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The idea here is the wise and the righteous look for a right path. And when someone corrects them and brings them back to a right path, they regard that as a blessing, as opposed to a scoffer or the wicked who do not regard it as a blessing. 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And again, we have wisdom and insight, two different concepts. Probably the most famous couplet in all of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. For by me your days will be multiplied and years added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. What comes to you in this world will land on you, and and you're going to be the one who bears it. Verse 13. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. Right, now... We have personified wisdom as a woman. We are now personifying folly as a woman. 
So we are not, in fact, talking about, as we did earlier in the book, a seductress. It's not what's being talked about here. What we're talking about is folly, and she is being personified as a woman, as opposed to, as I said earlier, he was talking about a seductress who would lead the young man astray. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive. She knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So one of the things that happens to young people is you will come under the influence of the wise guy, somewhat older, seems to know more about what's going on than you do, and will tell you that following the rules that your parents taught you is for suckers. Sort of like Eddie Haskell, for those of you who are old enough to remember Leave it to Beaver. Superficially seductive, loud, confident, assertive, and what she is doing is she is looking for the simple that she can pull into her orbit. And the idea that getting away with stuff is cool, stolen water is sweet, bread eaten in secret is pleasant. This is not talking about adultery as it was in the previous example. This is talking about getting away with stuff. And what he wants to do is convince the simple, the young one without any experience, that they know something that other people don't know, and we got something that nobody else has, and aren't we cool? Because we just got away with X, Y, or Z. Verse 18. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of shale. So he, in this case, is the simple. But he does not know that the shades are there, or the dead are there, or the Rephaim are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So the idea that they are the dead is certainly a decent translation. Onward to chapter 10. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. That one has always seemed interesting to me. And I guess the way I look at it, and this may not be right, but the way I look at it is, a foolish son is one that the father will box about the ears. The mother will be sad, but the father, if he's doing what he's supposed to be doing, will have the little sucker by the stacking swivel. And I tell a story on my son. He sort of got off the track while he was in college, and I pulled him out and gave him a shovel and put him on the end of a shovel when he dug an entrance to the basement and all that kind of stuff. He's turned out to be a fine young man. But he needed grabbing by the stacking swivel. So here a wise son makes a glad father because he doesn't have to do that kind of stuff. But a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. That's how I see that. I'm not sure it's right, but that's how I see it. Verse 2. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Notice the play in the marshal. Treasures gained by wickedness, so treasures and wickedness, 
and then you have righteousness, which crosses to wickedness, and then delivers from death, corresponds to treasure. It's a cross pattern notion. Verse 3, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but thwarts the craving of the wicked. This is human wisdom. This is the voice of the king. It does say that the righteous will never go hungry. But in fact, that isn't true, because occasionally the righteous do go hungry. It's just that the righteous don't typically go hungry. So if you're living your life, being righteous is the way to go if you want to avoid being hungry. But it doesn't say that the righteous will never be hungry. In other words, this is not thus saith the Lord, this is thus saith the wisdom of a king. And it's very wise, and it's good advice, and all that kind of stuff, but it is not a promise from God. Verse 4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And again, that's wisdom 101. I mean, it's generally true. But that doesn't mean that somebody who is diligent can't run across a a bad streak and and go bankrupt. I mean, it happens. So as I say, this is not a promise from God. This is human wisdom. Verse 5, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Work while the sun shines and don't sleep when you should be harvesting. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. That one is interesting to me. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, and that's fairly straightforward. But the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. What that says is a wicked person is always laying in wait for somebody. You can't ever trust his words because his words are designed to lead you into a place where he will have an advantage over you. So his mouth conceals the violence that he wants to do. Verse 7. The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. And the obvious example is compare Churchill and Hitler. Churchill's name is a blessing. Hitler is still used as a curse. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. We have just been introduced to the babbling fool. And a babbling fool is something different than just a regular fool. A babbling fool can't stop running his mouth. Just constantly filling the air with noise, even though he is a fool. So the wise of heart will receive a commandment, the mitzvot, the commandments of God. The wise will take them to heart. But a babbling fool, one who talks when he should be listening, will come to ruin. Because... He will not get any wisdom. If he's talking when he should be listening, he will not get the wisdom that is on offer here. Verse 9. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. This is human wisdom. One of the things that we have going on right now in our country, in Washington, is you have a bunch of babbling fools who are throwing mud at the president and his administration. All anonymous sources, no basis for any of it that anybody can prove. It's not, in fact, the case that they do walk securely because they are continual recipients of mud balls 
in the hope that one of them will stick. It's sort of like the, not to dip too far into politics. Right now, there's nothing to any of these investigations. So what they are hoping for is what's called a process crime. What they're hoping for is somebody in the administration will come up before them and give testimony. And that testimony will be somehow wrong or misleading. So there's no crime there, but what they instead prosecute is the misleading statement. That's how they got Scooter Libby. That's one of the reasons Flynn will not testify unless they give him immunity. Because he knows what they are hoping is that they will catch him in a contradiction. And if they catch him in a contradiction, they will then prosecute him for perjury. That's the game that's being played now. Anyway, so that was verse 9. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Whoever winks the eye causes trouble, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Notice we have a babbling fool again, and he's still coming to ruin. It hasn't improved any. Winking the eye is someone who speaks sarcastically or let's go and do this, wink, wink, and we're actually not going to do that. We're going to do something else. That's what that's talking about. 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Righteous people speak life. Wicked people speak violence and death. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Hatred stirs up strife is pretty obvious. Love covering all offenses. What you probably should go to is the love passage in Corinthians. The idea that you can overlook a lot with someone you love. If your attitude is loving, you can overlook a lot of offense or deal with a lot of offense. You don't necessarily have to overlook it, but it doesn't have to destroy anything. On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found. But a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. What I was saying earlier, the idea that some people will only learn through a beating. First, you've got to get their attention. And then once you got their attention, they'll listen to you. An example of this, somebody mentioned Watergate earlier on. You remember James Colson? He was a real hot shot in the Nixon administration. I would describe him as a babbling fool. What happened is he got convicted of one of these process crimes, and he got thrown in jail, which is to say he got the rod laid across his back, and in jail, now that God had his attention, God was able to work with him. That's what this is saying. In order to talk to some people, you first got to get their attention. And while he was riding high in the White House, you couldn't get his attention. So what happened was he gets thrown in jail, and all of a sudden, God has his attention. And he's able then to work with him, and he's done wonderful things since then. Verse 14, the wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. Which is to say, never underestimate the power of human stupidity. In fact, there's an article which is really good. I've saved it on my computer. It was several years ago, which is never underestimate the power of human stupidity. It laid people out into four quadrants, and you had wise and prudent, then you had stupid and malicious, and you had smart and malicious, and then you had stupid and malicious. And people underestimate how much damage a stupid person can do. You know, stupid people may appear charming and 
eat with the right fork and speak well, but they're fundamentally stupid, as in this kind of stupid in Proverbs. Verse 15, a rich man's wealth is his strong city, and poverty of the poor is their ruin. This will be the last one we'll do tonight. This is human wisdom. And what it's saying is that the wealth that someone stores up serves as a buffer against the shocks of the world. In other words, if you have a nice fat bank account, lots of adverse things can happen, but you'll be sheltered from those. Whereas somebody who's poor doesn't have any reserve. So if somebody who's poor, the first shock sends them over the edge. Other places in scripture, it says that you're a fool if you trust in wealth. And you need to understand what's being spoken of in those two instances. In this instance, what it's saying is in the world, having wealth serves as a buffer. In the passages where it says, he who trusts in wealth is a fool, what we're talking about is salvation. There's a movie, I'm a wealth of old 1940s movies. This very sophisticated guy who's lived his life as an atheist all his life is on his deathbed. And he's got a lot of money. So he brings up the local Catholic church and the cardinal comes over and gives him last rites and so forth. And the guy who's dying smiles to himself and says, now I will surely get in, escorted by a prince of the church. So that's someone who is trusting in wealth in the stupid sense, as opposed to having a healthy bank account, which insulates you from the shocks of things that happen in the world. We'll leave off there, and we'll pick up Acts next time, and then we'll come back here and finish up 10 and 1 and cover. Let us show